Okay, so we're going to keep talking about Song of Solomon today. We're going to focus in mostly on just part of chapter one because I believe it is the foundation of a believer maturing in love. Really uh, has helped my heart, and I even think as a parent, the number one thing I think of that I want to give my child is that God likes you even when you're weak, even when you mess up. I tell my son that all the time. He makes a bad choice, and I say, do I love you even though you made a wrong choice? And he says, yes. But if he can know that when he's 16, before the eyes of the Lord, that'll change his life. It, it is the hardest thing to learn when you're older. Like, I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to know it's taken maybe 18 years to keep growing in that confident and love before his eyes. And that's what we want to talk about today. So in verse 5, she says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark. So basically in this part, she's kind of hit. I mentioned it, but we'll mention again. She's kind of hit a spiritual crisis where she's desiring God, but she's feeling very dark. She's feeling unworthy or undeserving, lacking, weak, everything we all feel. She feels shame, rejection. There's a list of things she could be feeling. And it's common to all the sincere people who love God. We have these emotions where we feel this ache and this desire to know more of God, but we feel like there's a big roadblock in the way. Does roadblock make sense? There's a big gap between what we desire and what we actually feel and we feel like it's all our fault and we're the ones who have messed up honestly we have messed up but the way out of it is not to become a better you that's not it the world would say that even some christians would say just be your best self there is no thing as your best self <laughs> outside of christ like self doesn't actually exist if you look at the definition i think biblically of a person there's no such thing as one individual person. People are always defined in context to relationship to others, just like God. God is a personhood. There's three in one. They have no ability to define themselves individually without all three. Does that make sense? So even as humans, we have this individual, self-centered, selfish culture who's like, just be good. You do good. You fix you. There's no possible way. We're not made to be singular. We're always made to be united to another. That's why when the babies are born, they literally do not know that they're not attached to their mom. They don't know that they're their own person for a good long time. They cry because they think I'm supposed to be touching that person. That like they think I am supposed to be attached. And I think that's something part of even the childlikeness that the Lord wants to restore to us is our need to be always be attached. We are attached to Christ, but we don't always live as if we are. We don't always act as if we are. And his desire is that we always be those ones leaning. The way that the Song of Solomon ends is she, it says in Song of Solomon 8, she comes up leaning on her beloved. She doesn't come up victorious, standing by herself, all strong, she comes up leaning. It's kind of like Jacob 
wrestling with the Lord and he has a limp. There's that reality that the Lord looks at a good leader, a good, uh, a strong believer in the ability that they lean. We think of it the opposite as the person who's so strong, has it all put together, they're actually weaker than the person who on the inside is leaning so hard into the Lord's strength. That's why he says, my strength is perfected in your weakness. His strength's not perfected in our strength. He doesn't need our strength. He wants our weakness. And that's the, the crisis that she's realizing now is this crisis of, I'm, but I'm weak. I make bad choices sometimes. I, I do sin. I am not a s mostly a sinner. I'm mostly a believer who loves God, and sometimes I make wrong choices. But that's the, the again, they said, the crisis that she's coming up against. And she's realizing, I think, I, I think this is a revelation of God. She's realizing her heart is deceitful. We've all read, maybe we haven't. There's a verse in Jeremiah 17, 9, says the heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts cannot be trusted. And some people get lost in this verse, and I get, think, get tormented with this verse. Like, I can never trust my heart. I can never trust my emotions. That's not necessarily the point of this verse, and that's not the Lord's point, and that's not his desire ever. The point of this is that I want that I want to bring out is we're actually darker than we think we are. We actually have more of a brokenness inside of us that we think. So that's why I'm saying it's a gift of God that she can see it. So sometimes when the Lord shines his light, uh, Mike Bickle always says he shines his light or he turns the telescope up another degree, you know, instead of like 10%, you can see 10,000% like zoom in. That's actually a gift of God to be able to see. Now, what happens, though, is we're often shocked by it. The Lord's not shocked. So it's a gift of God that she can see she's dark. But what she says is, I'm dark but lovely. So that means in that saying it like that, she's saying the lovely is, tr is the superior truth over the dark. But the dark is just important. So in order to grow in maturity in our relationship with the Lord, I believe we have to have these both tr two truths. We are dark and we are lovely. We are not defined by our darkness. That is not what defines us. I don't like it when people get labeled, you are this person and it's defined by their, what their struggle is. That's not how I define somebody. I define somebody as they're the bride of Christ. They're the son of God. They're defined by how God sees them but they still might be struggling with something. And that's th just the way it is. Because some people sometimes just focus on the darkness. Sometimes those holiness preachers, bless them, I love them, we need them. They just focus on all the wrong things, all the darkness. And then sometimes people just focus on all the lovely. So then you get what we call, I don't know what you call it, the hyper grace message, where it's like, oh grace, God loves you, God loves you, but you never, acknowledging that you actually have some issues. Does that make sense? So it's both. That is the hardest place to walk sometimes because as believers, we'd rather just live in this, I'm, I'm a mess, therefore I can control my relationship with God and I don't have to try to get so close to him because it's just not safe. And so we just live in this constant state of condemnation. Some people just would rather stay there because they don't trust that he's going to accept them. 
or some people have all these issues but always keep it hidden because I'm so lovely but I have all this stuff but I'm supposed to always be lovely and they just kind of just whitewash like we say whitewash just kind of hide all that and just smile and pretend everything's good and the Lord desires that we live before him in openness no matter what it is but the truth that we are dark in our in those choices we make sometimes dark in the the fact that we don't have resurrected bodies yet we do not have the fullness of our salvation in all of the full like the outworking of it physically we have the fullness of salvation spiritually we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing but i like it how david pawson says it we got saved we're being saved and we will be saved there's a process of this salvation and some of it, a lot of it has to, in, on this side, through these years, is sanctification, is growing in our relationship with the Lord. That is why we are still dark. I'm going to break down some other verses about why we're lovely to God, according to the scripture. But I think we all understand, like, the darkness part of us. I'm not saying I have, uh, because I believe in Christ, I have, I'm a new creation. And that's one of the verses I want to hit in a minute. So I'm not saying I am the old man is in me. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there is still something. How many feel that? Like there is something we are warring against on the inside. It will not always be like that. It will not. It will change when we see him. We will be transformed and be like him. But until then, there is this war. That's what Romans is all about. That doesn't go away. But walking in confidence in love, is possible through all of it and that's what will help us mature and stay strong and stay steady and again i i said it before but the 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 believers that are in their 50s and 60s and 40s all of the believers that i've seen that are i'm just saying older than me that have been walking with jesus longer that i'm provoked by are those who have this truth who know that god delights in them not according to their performance not according to their perfect strength. There is no such thing, but you know what I mean. Like, I did it all right. I did all my quiet times right. They know God delights in them because God delights in them. He's the starting point. What is wrong with our culture is we, we are often the starting point of even our conversation with God. We come to him and say all these things, but we're starting with us, which he, he loves us. He delights in us. But the starting point needs to be him, how he sees, his emotions, his feelings. That's why when I was praying, I was praying we would submit to him and what he thinks. So often our minds and our thoughts, we even have biblical verses twisted. The enemy does it sometimes because and he, to use it against us, and we don't always submit to what the word says. It's, it is really hard to believe how much he likes us and delights in us but is the number one thing that will heal our hearts of so many issues i don't care what has happened to you what kind of father you had what kind of abuse the number one thing we need is to feel wanted and enjoyed and liked no matter what who we are and not labeled not labeled for at, for our brokenness but seen seen and known in our brokenness and still desired the most terrifying thing about dating and engaged when I was engaged to my husband was like if I tell him this 
whatever, is he still going to want me? If I, if I confess this, is he still going to desire me? Now, the crazy thing about the Lord is he actually already knows it all. And we know that he knows it all, but we don't always live like we know that he knows, like he knows it all. You know, Psalm 139. How many have read Psalm 139? It's one of the most famous psalms. He knows the words before they're even on my lips. He knows what's coming next. He sees. He sees me in the darkness. He knows. But then he says, but I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows. He knows my frame that I am but dust. The problem is we don't know that. We often think we're supposed to be so much better than we are. And that is the glory. We are going to be greater than we could ever imagine. But the pressure we put on ourselves is not the pressure he's putting on us. It's a different yoke. When you read Matthew 11, it says, my yoke is easy. There's still a yoke. Christianity is hard. I am not saying it's an easy pansy. I do not believe in that kind of Christianity. It's not easy. There is still a yoke. There is a, but you're doing it in partnership with somebody. But it's easy in the sense that it's doable. Often, even Aaron and I have these conversations, and I'm like, that's not the yoke of the Lord. And he's like, I know. Because it's, it's not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's bearing, like, you know, he's just worn out or exhausted. I'm going, that's you yoking you with your expectations of what you should be like. I think we all have this image in our head of the best us. Like, this is me holy. This is me, you know, walking righteous before the eyes of the Lord. And sometimes it's our own, it's a vain imagination. It's not actually something the Lord has said over us. Does that make sense? And we yoke ourselves to that picture, and that becomes our slave driver. And then if we fail, we're beating ourselves up. So we are our own worst enemies sometimes. It's the dialogue in our head, and the Holy Spirit is sitting there so tenderly, so kindly, and the Father and the Son, they're all going, stop looking at you. Just look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Like that's when David messes up, I'm, I get down to his level. I do not always do this right. I'm not, I'm not the best parent. I'm just learning. But I get down to his level, and I say, look at my eyes. And he is dodging me because of shame, guilt, whatever. He knows he messed up. All I want is for him to look in my eyes so I can smile and tell him I love him. But he's fighting me every which way. And that's just how we are. And I'm like, even David, he lies. Now, I don't, you know, he's four. Like, he discovered lying. He goes, I only lie sometimes. I'm like, I know, okay. But I'm like, David, I don't care what you're going to tell me. I just need you to talk. I'm like, is that the truth? Yep. And then he finally comes out. I go, but I still love you, even though you lied to me. But you know you're not supposed to lie. And there's still consequences. I, he has, because he lied or because he disobeyed, there's still a consequence. But because he opened up, the consequence obviously is lessened because he opened to me. But I want him to understand in life there is discipline because we make bad choices. He still likes us, but we still may get the discipline or the, uh, reap the uh, bad fruit from that choice. The Lord doesn't always take away the bad fruit, just like in David's life. There was consequences for that. But David, in parenting, I see it so in, like, 
bold colors that we just think it's just us. We think nobody see like like we act like God doesn't see. And so to tell him about it is so vulnerable. And, but that's what he's desiring. Even David, sometimes he goes, like, he'll do something. And I have that mom thing, like, I can see over here, you know? Like, I know he did it. And he goes, but you didn't see. I go, I did see. He goes, I didn't see you see. Like, he thinks, but if I did it, like, I go, David, it doesn't matter. God knows. But he's four. He doesn't have that understanding. But I'm like, but you can always tell him if you messed up. He's hilarious. I could always tell you my son David's stories. Anyways. But the thing about the Lord is, the Lord, when he's looking down, this always overwhelms my heart. I, we think so opposite of him. At least I do. Maybe you don't. I, I mean, I'm still growing. I've changed a lot since I was a teenager. But we, we, when he looks down, he's looking. We think he's looking for the strong ones. Like, where's the ones who have it all put together? But that's not what the Psalms say. That's not what Isaiah says. In Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. Isaiah 58 says, Though he's the high and lofty one, he dwells with the broken and the contrite. It's opposite of what we think. Those are the ones he's looking for. He is not surprised by our sin. He's not surprised by our weakness. He does not condone our sin. I think there's a difference, too, between the weakness of just being human, that is not sinful. Does that make sense? There's a weakness. We are weak. We're just like Isaiah said. We're like little grasshoppers. We think we're mighty and strong, but the Lord looks down and like, they're just little grasshoppers. And the nations are a drop in a bucket. You know, that's the revelation we need. And so there's a weakness about being human. There's also the sin part. Those are, I just wanted to clarify that there's there's that difference. He he is so gentle and kind to us in our weakness. And then when we sin, if there is that broken and contrite heart with that he repentance and he humbling ourselves before him, that's where he's dwelling. The hyper grace message would just say he just dwells with us and you don't necessarily need to repent. I'm like, you must always repent in turn because what sin is, is not just an action. Sin is a violation of our relationship with God. It's, it's something that brings us farther away. Even in parenting, this is just for, I'm using all my parenting things on you. Um, we tell David there's this circle. For all you over there, it's okay if you're missing out. It's just a circle. So there's this circle, and here's happy little David. This is what we call the circle of safety. And this, as parents, I feel like the Lord has said, I want you to stay in this. The same with the Lord. The Lord goes, there's these commandments. There's this way of living I've given you to stay in this place. And when we mess up, which happens, there's a break in the circle of safety. And now David, or me, you know, is out here. He's not safe anymore. He's outside of the circle. This helps my son because he's very visual. So we're outside of that. And to bring, for David, we tell him to bring him back in, he has to acknowledge that he made a wrong choice. And then he has to have a consequence or, and repent. Sometimes, the con sometimes he's, he's trained, he asks for mercy. So he says, have mercy. It's the cutest thing. He, and he knows mercy means 
less spankings, no spankings, or less consequences. So he knows, he goes, have mercy. I go, okay. One spanking. He goes, no, mercy means no spanking. I said, no, it means you don't get what you deserve. You deserved two, but you get one. And he goes, okay. So he, he's trained to ask for mercy. I go, do you want to be safe again in, in this relationship? See, that's what sin is. The Lord doesn't just look down and go, you're acting wrong. Get it together. He's looking down going, you're not safe. I want you safe in your relationship with me. I want you as close as possible. And that's what we're trying to teach David. David, this is about our relationship. If you disobey me and don't trust me, I can't keep you safe. You're taking away my ability to keep you safe. And that's what the Lord's desiring. And it, like I said, this is often hard because we didn't all have um, whole parents. None of us had a perfect parent. Um, And not all cultures believe in spanking because they've done it wrong. In in America, we still believe in it, even though I think technically it might be kind of illegal. But I I feel... (laughs) feel like it's biblical in done in love done in love and kindness and especially when my husband disciplines David they come out of the room 90% of the time cracking up laughing and David always gets closer to us after discipline that is the goal of discipline is to bring somebody closer to you not to bring a distance that it's about restoring relationship not hurting relationship if it's hurting relationship then we should dialogue with the Lord Anyways, it's not a parenting class. It's just my everyday life, and so I see all these biblical principles in front of my face all the time. So really, the journey that we're on and the journey she's on in the Song of Solomon is to become more confident in what he, who he is, what he says about her, than what she thinks about her and what she feels and what she says about herself. Does that make sense? We ache to, like I think this is just how we're made at least this is how I'm made we ache to feel good about me I just want to feel at peace about me that is not possible outside of him it's not possible again I know I'm saying the same thing multiple different ways that's what I do but it's not possible outside of knowing who he is and what he says about us that is the journey he wants us to go on because often it What throws us off is, again, that picture we have of who we think we should be in our head gets taken down, again, because we failed. So then we're trying to figure out how can we get that ideal me back up there. And that, the whole time, we don't even know we're doing it. We're focused on us. And the Lord is just saying, just look at me and let me tell you who you are. It's way better than you could ever imagine. Like I said uh, a couple nights ago, you write down everything he says about her in the Song of Solomon, it's overwhelming, and still he would have more to say about us, how lovely we are, how much he loves it when we make a good choice, all these different things about her. Just to break down these couple verses, when she says I'm dark, like the tints of Kadar, the reason that means like Kadar kind of stands for the flesh is because the those tent the the kind of tents they made in that area were made from goats wi- wild goats so wild goats in the bible are never a good thing you know sheep goats like they're just so that is why the imagery 
there is what she's saying. She's saying, on the outside, what you see is dark. It's not pleasing. But on the inside, she says, she says, but the curtains of Solomon, she says, I'm dark but lovely like the curtains of Solomon. So we know the curtains of Solomon. There were the curtains in the holy place. You can't get much more beautiful than the curtains in the holy place. Like, they're the white, pure curtains. That is the, yeah. Song of Solomon 1, 5. You're welcome. That's a big contrast, too. Like, the, those two extremes. That's why I was saying we are like darker than we know in our depravity and we're more beautiful than we could ever imagine in our righteousness in Christ. So that's just a breakdown of those couple verses so you understand the meaning behind him, behind that. So I think there's the acknowledging of our sinful flesh, but that is not the whole truth of who we are. And the Lord desires first that we are confident that he loves us even in our weakness. And second, that, he, that to, we are to be confident that he esteems our weak love for him as genuine rather than false or hypocritical. So this for me, I, there's like the two things. I'll say it again. First, he desires that we're confident that he likes us in our weakness, just in even meaning our weakness just as humans or even when we mess up in sin. He likes us. He delights in us when we run to him. Also, our weak love. Like how many, I, I feel this sometimes going, I don't have a lot. I have love to offer him, but I feel like I wish it was so much more. Is this even enough? And it is. Like I love this analogy. I hope it works to translate it. Or it's a cheese analogy, so maybe it'll work. So my friend used to say is, do you guys have Swiss cheese with the holes in it, or is that just an American ad adaption? Okay. So, Swiss cheese has holes in it, right? Is it still cheese? Yes. yes, but there's holes in it, right? So it's not a whole solid block. It's the same with our love. Our love has holes in it sometimes. It's not, it's not this foolproof, like, you know what I'm trying to say? It's weak sometimes, but it's still love. But sometimes we despise that weakness of our love. We want it to be so strong and put together and beautiful. But what we don't see is that those weak little things, even when you walk through the courtyard and you look up and you say, I love you too, Jesus. That love moves him so much we have no idea. And sometimes, like I said before, I'm a mom. That's all I have all day long is those little whispers where I say, Thank you for loving me, and I just need you to, I need to feel that you delight in me right now, and then I need to love him back. It's so weak sometimes. I've had it before where we're just, I'm sorry, I'm saying two thoughts in one sentence. I'm tired, but I've had it before one time. I was really sick. Uh, this was in 2009. I was very sick. Uh, my hormones were very messed up. Um, so women, we understand if your hormones are messed up, you're just messed up. Like, it's not fun. I always tell the Lord, I'm like, could you have just put like these little charts here so we could wake up and look and be like, oh, things shifted. Because we sometimes we wake up and feel a little crazy. So men, give us grace. It is crazy what goes on in our bodies sometimes. So I'm just like, and then I tell Jesus, I'm like, I know you're the sympathetic high priest. 
but you didn't have female hormones. So I'm still just questioning, like, it's just a joke between me and Jesus. But I'm telling him, I'm like, I know you're gentle with me, but these female hormones, they're something. So anyways, I was very sick. I still was working. I was, um, if anybody knows some of the leadership at IHOP, Alan Hood was one, is one of the main leaders, and I was his assistant. It was not a good job that I should have taken in that season. But in a way, I was kind of coerced into it, and I wanted to do it, but I didn't feel well. So needless to say, I worked too hard to serve him, which I love doing. He was, he's an amazing leader. He's one of those people that when they smile, you feel like Jesus is smiling at you, you know? Very tender man. Um, but then I get home from work, and I, I literally had no capacity to even read my Bible. That's not just being silly. I was that completely exhausted. My hormones were so messed up. It was awful. So I would just lay there, and I'd be like, Lord, I can't even read my Bible. He goes, just let me. This is it. This is our relationship. Just lay there, Jess. We're so used to, like, what can I do? Can I worship you? Can I read the Bible? Can I? Yes, all of that's good. But in that moment, I was so weak. I wasn't in sin. I just was weak and broken and sick and going, I had to move back in with my parents. That's very humbling. Like, you know, my mom had to take care of me, which, of course, my mother loved. My mom had to cook for me, take care of me. And I just laid there crying, going, I can't give him anything right now. He didn't want anything. All he wanted was my heart. All he wanted was me to sit there and say, hi, I love you. This is it. This is all I got. And then I would eat popcorn and fall asleep. Like that was my, you know, and I'd cry because then in the midst of it, I'm fighting so many accusations all the time. It's so hard. It's so hard. Sometime in the midst of everything that's going around, we hear the accusations from people, from our own soul, from the enemy. And still there's this sweet, quiet voice where he's saying, I'm so much better than you think I am. Just let me love you. That, and that is what pulls us out of darkness. That's what pulls us out of sin. It's not just do better or just feel better. That doesn't motivate anybody, but that's how we've always been motivated our whole lives. So just to reiterate again, our weak love moves him so much. That's why it says in Song of Solomon, with one glance of our eyes, he's overwhelmed. One glance. Like, you'd think, don't you just want me to get a little bit stronger? He's like, no, I just want your acknowledgement that I'm here. So when David actually gets up the courage and looks in my eye, I feel so much love because, you know what, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going, you trust me, David. Do you trust me? That's what I, and that's what the Lord's going, I want you to trust me. We are so used to leaning on our own understanding and not trusting the Lord, like it says in Proverbs. And we know these verses, some of these verses so well. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we do it all the time because our brains are always going. Just real quick, I want to break down a few reasons why are we beautiful to God in our weaknesses biblically. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 17 through 21 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, but hold all things have become new. 
I'm uh, giving you an abbreviated version, obviously, right now. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when the father looks at us, he looks at us through his son. And he looks at us as we are united to Christ. That is why we are beautiful to him. That's one reason. Because you're connected to Christ. Whether or not you feel it or not, you are connected. It says we are one spirit with him. And also, I think in the new birth, it says in Matthew 26, 41, when, uh, that verse that says the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the new birth, we were given that spirit of adoption that says yes, that cries out, Abba, Father. Even the yes that we have in our heart is not even us. It's the Lord in us saying yes. That ache and that hunger, we are not good enough in and of ourselves to even have all that. He's the one in us saying yes. That's another reason we're beautiful. And also, that I think the main reason we are beautiful, this is the third reason, First reason is the gift of righteousness. The second reason is we have a willing spirit because of, of the new birth. The third reason is it's God's personality. It's his choice. It's just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So if some, my husband looks at me and says, I'm beautiful, sometimes I look at him and go, what are you looking at? Like, <laughs> you know, my hair's crazy. I'm still in my pajamas. I have milk spit up over here. But he lo- he's not lying. I am beautiful to him. He gets to decide. The Lord gets to decide. We love to argue with him. We don't even know we're doing it sometimes. But really, it's up to him. I love Deuteronomy. Let me see real quick if I can find it. Sorry, I hear my kid laughing. There's nothing like your children. That's a good laugh. Okay. Here we go. Deuteronomy 7.7. It's easy to remember. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, but because the Lord loved you. Basically, the abbreviated is, the Lord loves you because the Lord loves you. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you. He's talking to Israel here. He's like, Israel, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest among the nations. I mean, look at even Israel now. It doesn't make sense. I'm always like, could CNN... And BBC and all these people just pull out real and realize how crazy this is. It's one little teeny little nation. And the Lord, why did the Lord choose him? Because, I, I lost it already, because he loved them. That's it. Why does the Lord say we're beautiful? Because we're, he chose to love us. That's it. The, we, we can argue with him. Uh, we just do or say that or we compare. The reason that. I'm lovely, Jess, standing up here is because I was at IHOP for 18 years, and da, 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 that, that is not the reason. The only reason I'm confident in love is just because I let him. I said yes. It's because he loves me. It doesn't make me any better. The person on the stage, the person cleaning the toilets, he chooses whom he chooses, and he just loves us. That's it. And we can't change his mind. He's not a man that he would lie. He doesn't look at us and say, you know, I love you this, this, and this way. And you, like, he just loves us, and we're all so different. And our cultures have defined beauty, and it's so wrong. Beauty is not about how how much you weigh, the clothes you wear, the style you do your hair. Obviously, I like style, something, I like makeup, I like, that's not what makes me beautiful at the end of the day. 
And yes, I think I'm beautiful in a certain way because that's the way the Lord made me. Everybody's beautiful. The thing that is the most attractive thing about me is that I know God likes me because you can see it in my eyes. You can see it in people's eyes. They're just happy. They know. They have that confidence. That is what that beauty is. There's this, um, have you guys heard of the author Max Lucado? Yes. Okay, so he's written children's books. Has anybody read his children's books? Has anybody read You Are Special? If you haven't read You Are Special, read it to your kids if you have kids, but just read it. I mean, I've, I used to read it to the young adults who did Fire in the Night. I mean, usually the all the 19-year-old guys, 20-year-old guys are just sitting on the front row streaming with tears. Basically, this story, I'm just going to tell you because I just love this story. This story is about these little wooden characters. And then there's Eli, who's the woodcarver, and he makes all the wooden characters, and their names are Wimmicks. So Eli makes them all. They all live in this little village, and there's this little one named Puccinello, and he just falls often. The reason I love him is I always was tripping and falling and making accidents as a little kid. I always said, I'm sorry it was an accident. And my parents were always like, I know, it always is. I wasn't shamed for it, but it just was part of who I was. And my, it's funny because my middle name is Grace. So I was like, I'm a very gracious person, but I'm not graceful. Like I can't walk, I trip. I mean, I can now, but I just did stuff. So Punchinello in this story is always doing things. He's messing up things. And what happened in the village, if you messed up, all everybody came around you and put a gray dot on you. So he's covered in these gray stickers. But then there's these other people who, like, they could ride on a unicycle or they could sing amazing, and everybody gave them gold stars. This is what we do to each other. And it is, I think it's right to compliment each other, but this is the wrong compliment. This is the praise of men and, the you know, tearing each other down. And so... He's just walking around downcast the whole time because he's been given gray dots. Some of us in our whole lives, that's what we've been given from men is gray dots. Like, you know, you could have done better from our dads. I had a great dad, but still there's words that he said that I still have to give to the Lord, forgive, because they stick with you. And that's what happens. These, these gray dots stuck on him until he met this girl one day named Luci Lucinda, I think, yeah. Lucia. She's beautiful. She has no dots and no stars. Nothing. People try to because she's so pretty. They always try to put stars on her. And they fall off because it doesn't stick. Nothing sticks on her. And so he's like, wait a sec. Why and then, yeah, then she gets gray dots from people too because she has no stars. So people are always trying to give her stars and dots, but nothing sticks. And so then Punchinello meets her and goes, why don't you have anything? And then why are you so happy? She goes, Go and talk to Eli. So he goes up, and he's hiding because he's this little wooden guy. It's like this is the house. He's like this teeny little wooden guy, and Eli is this big, huge carpenter up here working on these little wooden characters. And Eli talks to him, tells him this beautiful story, and tells him why he made them. He's like, I don't like that they do that. They were made. You guys were made for me, all this stuff. Anyways, I'm trying to shorten it. And then he basically... And then Puccinello goes, but I want to be like her. He goes, then come back and see me every day. So basically, that's the story. He comes back, and he t the Eli tells him, you are so special because I made you. That's all you need to know. The only reason you're special is not the stars, not the dots, whatever. It's because I made you. 
So at the end of the story, you see like a dot falling off and a star falling off. Like, actually, I don't even know if he had any stars. He just had dots, little gray dots. It was so sad. But really, we have a lot of baggage over the years of things people have said, even well-meaning. There are going to be some really well-meaning people, but something they said stuck to us wrong. And it's not what the Lord is saying, and it's not how he wants us identified. And the more time we spend on hi with him, the more he wants to wash away some of those things because they're actually weighing us down. We think that there may be things that are actually helping us go farther, but they're, they're weighing us down, if that, if that analogy makes sense. So really, again, he likes us because he likes us. That's it. He's the creator. He gets to decide. And that's what our culture doesn't realize. That's why they rage against Jesus and our absolute truth is they don't realize he created you. That's it. Like, that's where the buck stops. <laughs> the euro stops. That's what we, we always say. That's where the buck stops. I don't know if that translates for you guys. So that's just where it stops is if he created me, he gets to decide what's beautiful and what's right. The fourth reason we're beautiful is because we're the bride of Christ. We belong to him, and he says we're beautiful. It's basically the, th the third reason and the fourth reason are basically the same in just different ways. And I just to, um, let me make sure, what time is it? I want to play this out a little bit, too, and think about it in the context of Peter's life. I love, how many people love Peter in the Bible, but... <laughs> And it's like, how many people want to be Peter, though? You're like, no, I'll be Paul, <laughs> not Peter. <laughs> like, I think the Lord told Mike Bickle one time, he compared him to Peter, and Mike was like, can I have Paul? Like, please, don't compare me to Peter. Like, we want Peter's, like, enthusiasm, but Peter just stuck his foot in his mouth. Does that, do you guys say that in different cultures? Like, stuck his foot in his mouth? That's what we say in America. He just always, meaning he was talking and it was bad. And it's, you know, so Peter just, he, God bless him, super zealous. But his zeal, so his, his, his um, confidence was often in his own zeal, not in the Lord's strength. And that's all of our journey is to realize that our zeal is beautiful to him, but it's nothing compared to the Lord's zeal. In my 20s, I was so sure I was going to do this, 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 and this. And I did great things. And my, the Lord loved my zeal. But my confidence was mostly in my hunger and my zeal. Does that make sense? And not mostly in the Lord's ability to get me further in the relationship. And Peter is a great example in the Gospels of this. Peter, I just love him. I mean, he's the only one who, like, rebukes the Son of God, God, in the flesh to his face, you know. And then one second later, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty big rebuke. But Peter just, I love him's tenacity. He keeps going. Except for, I think the hardest crisis for Peter is that he denied the Lord three times. And we all know that story. And I think, man, I've watched different crucifixion movies. And, I, you know, we're always sometimes like, I would never do that. But I'm like, I don't know what I would do in that crisis and feeling all the pressure the disciples felt, like put yourself in their shoes and there's that trembling in us. Like, would we say yes to him still? I want to feel that trembling. I don't want to just assume, oh, I know I love him. I'm like, they were literally physically with him and still denied him. 
so Peter has this crisis. And we know that. He denies the Lord three times. And then Peter, even after the resurrection, what does Peter go do? He goes fishing. Does he feel confident in love? I would not say that Peter felt confident. I think Peter felt like I'm a failure. He felt shame. He felt like I can't be who I said I thought I was going to be because I messed up. Like I can't actually walk out this calling because that was such a big mess up. So I'm going to go do what I know how to do because at least I know how to do that. And I cannot do this, like walk with Jesus because I messed up too bad. And we've all been there, I think, in different ways. I don't think, I hope, hopefully we haven't done this kind of an intense storyline because we weren't there. But I think, too, since the garden, this has been the story. Since the garden, we've messed up and then we've run from the Lord. One time I, re- I was reading Genesis and I asked the Lord, I was like, can I read it? Can you give me your perspective? Because I think, again, so often we read the scripture and we're looking about, thinking about us. We're thinking even about Adam and Eve, and we're not always thinking about the Lord's heart in the midst of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and those parts. So I was reading it and realizing the first question in the Bible is the fall. The first time there was ever a question where God asked a question is at the fall. And he didn't say, what did you do? Or why did you disobey me? Or where, like anything. What did he say? He said, where are you? I think he's been saying it for every generation since. He's just saying, calling to us, going, where are you? Why did you run away from me instead of to me? That's, again, what sin does. Sin makes us run from him. Not sin itself. It's really the shame of sin. It's the thing that makes us run away from him instead of to him. And Peter runs away because he feels confident. We've all done this in different ways, shapes, or forms. And then I also just was, when I was reading that, just, again, felt the Lord's heart, deep heart, for how much it hurt him, the fall. How much he, because it changed the relationship so dramatically. We just sometimes view it as they sin, they mess up, there's consequences. And he had that grieving heart because he wants communion he wants relationship the whole point of creation is relationship that's it he said I want you to be with me where I am I want them to be in this love there's three of them they know what it's like to have a community of love and they're thinking we want more people in it that's what he's desiring so again I'm just saying from the beginning that's the Lord's desire is to not run to to have our hearts not run away from him but to run to him and again that's what I'm doing with parenting is like how to teach my son to run to me because he trusts me and he knows I'm the safest place even when he messes up it's a hard thing for him to learn hard for me to even figure out sometimes how to parent him and we feel disqualified all these things that run through our brain and his heart was hurt by that failure I think sometimes I've seen many believers who have these crises that, like Peter had, that happened in their life. They're never the same again. One, partly because they don't let the Lord, they don't ever return to the Lord in that same way, and they don't let the Lord delight in them in that weak place. It's so hard to do. I've watched many believers make some poor choices, and and then I watch, and I'm like, they didn't run back. They still kept themselves in the penalty box. Does that make sense? 
we use that in hockey, you know, you make a mistake, you're stuck in the penalty box. We do that with ourselves. We mess up, I'll stay in the penalty box until I feel worthy of you loving me again. And that's so not biblical, so not how he thinks, but that's how we, we treat it. And the thing, um, and the shame. Shame is a huge thing. I don't think we realize how big it is. Have you realized in the Bible it says that they were naked and unashamed? Not naked and unafraid, not naked and any other thing. It was shame. S shame is the number one, I think, one of the number one tactics the enemy uses to keep us away from our relationship with God and then being effective in what we're called to do externally. Shame. It's the thing. There's always this other storyline. I'm actually reading a book on shame by a Christian psychologist. Which is, it's actually a phenomenal book. But there's... Shame has this ability to go into our brains and compartmentalize our brains. And where there's been failure or mess up, we create little fences and we isolate. The whole point about shame is isolating. So to get us to separate and to, to break off. So that's what Peter's doing right now. He feels shame. He's creating a safety mechanism. So his coping mechanism in this moment of shame is to go fish. It's like, okay, I'm just going to go do that because I feel confident in that. I feel so much shame about the ministry with Jesus, I can't go back to that. I mean, we've everybody's seen or done this sometime in their lives where they've seen somebody go, they've encountered some failure, maybe something was done to them. It doesn't, I don't, doesn't matter the story. If something was done to you, if you did something, shame still got the upper hand. Does this upper hand make sense? The soul of shame... I can't tell you the author right now offhand, just like I can't always tell you the Bible reference. I can tell you the verse. <laughs> so the soul of shame, it's like retelling the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, that. And then sometimes we have opened up to leaders, and then they've rejected us and done it wrong. And so then it makes sense that we're going to isolate. But the point, of, so I'm just laying that out, like the power of shame. I'm just realizing it in my own life. But I realized it when I was reading this story. So one of the, I'm not saying it's 100%, but this author in this book was saying the main way, yes. Thank you, Kirk Thompson. Thanks for looking that up. The main way to get delivered from shame is not just you sitting in your quiet place alone with the Lord talking about it. It is not. Because this guy has studied the brain, like meaning he's watched people's brains and watched what is happening, and because he's counseled people for hundreds, maybe thousands of hours to watch. His main verse, too, is, he, is like one of the things he uses is the renewing of the mind. So he's wanting to see... I don't want their actions to change. I don't want people to stop doing pornography. I want their mind renewed, which is very biblical. You, you, don't look, you look at the actions, but you go, what's the root of the actions? What's going on in our thoughts? That's why the tagline for the book is retelling the story we tell ourselves. There's always two storylines fighting for your attention. The Lord's storyline for what he says about you, and then shame is always talking, saying, you're not good enough. You did this wrong. 
the main way to get healed from that is actually in talking with another person. And he's watched it, which I think the Lord is another person. But the way that we are made, something happens in our brain when we're actually sitting talking to a physical person. I think something happens in our brain when we're praying too. But because shame's power alley is isolation, you alone in your prayer room, you're still isolated. Does that make sense? When you open up your heart, like when I actually go to, I did this recently, I went to a friend, I said, I need to talk to you about this, this, and this because of something that happened in my childhood where I was shamed, it's still popping up now. And it's that storyline that was playing on repeat in my brain started to break because I was telling her. And she's going, that's a, like, she, the thought that goes through my head doesn't even make sense to her, but it's not, the experience didn't happen to her, it happened to me. Does that make sense? So I'm saying that to say often, I, because I've been in the prayer movement for 18 years, I see people go, oh, I'm just, just me and Jesus will work it out. I go, actually, no. Yes, you need intimacy with Jesus. You need to talk to him, but you have to talk to people. I go to a counselor. There's no shame in that. I go to my best friends, Deborah, Dana. I can't, uh, the reason I go to a counselor more so right now is because my mom has dementia. I can't go to my mom anymore. I don't have a mom to talk to about those things. Otherwise, I would go to my mom. I have people in my life. I have a husband, uh, but sometimes it, it needs to not be my husband. It needs to be another woman or even a count the counselor. Bless God, I love counselors. They have been anointed by God to help you. Sometimes you just need somebody who doesn't know your whole story that can just hear you tell your whole story. And it's the beautiful thing. I'm not trying to do a commercial for counselors. I'm just saying there's no shame in it. We need help talking. We need a lot of help talking in life. So I'm all this to get back to the story of Peter. What does Jesus do with Peter? He gets Peter to retell the story he's telling in his head. Peter's sitting there thinking, well, first of all, they're in the boat, and they see Jesus, and he's like, hey, did you catch any fish? I just love Jesus. You know, nothing too spiritual. Let's just make fish and hang out in his resurrected body, and wow. <laughs> I would love to do that. I will someday. Anyways, and so... Some have the theory that when it says Peter jumped into the water, some have the Peter, some people have thought Peter actually jumped away, like he was jumping and going to swim away because he just had so much shame. I don't know which way he jumped, but whatever, he ends up talking to Jesus. And I can imagine him, like I have moments, different things, not this intense, but I don't think it matters. Whatever matters is that there's shame. There's something that's keeping my heart distant from him that's what matters to the Lord, and it should matter to me because I want my relationship to, to be strong and vibrant with him. So I can imagine Peter's just sitting there, head kind of down, kind of nervous, kind of focused more on the fish, not so much on Jesus, you know, just like, okay, I'll just do this. And then Jesus looks at him and goes, Peter, do you love me? Peter's thinking, I just denied you three times. But in his heart, he's like, it's like the Swiss cheese, like, it's really weak, but yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, Peter, again, do you love me? And Peter says again, you know, Lord, yes, I love you. And I'm not, I know I'm not saying all the verses right, but you know the story enough. Then he says it a third time, Peter, do you love me? Really, I mean, even scientifically, he is re 
rewiring those thought processes of shame as Peter's confessing, yes, Lord, I do love you. Shame lost its ability because Peter, he got Peter to say with his own mouth what was true, but shame had shut him up. Shame had capped him and said, you denied him. How could you love him? And Jesus knows the truth and so gets him to talk. That's the power and ability of sitting down with somebody who knows who you are, knows who, what God, they don't know in fullness, but they can see partly who God says you are. And then you confess something to them or you say something that happened and you talk and they get you to say, who are you? I'm beautiful. I'm the bride. You get to confess all these truths and rewire your brain and retell the story. That's what the Lord was doing, and that's how we're dark but lovely. Does that make sense? Peter was dark. He messed up. You know, and all of us think, I'd never do what Peter did. I don't know if I would never do what Peter did. I don't know. I want to be more confident in his love than in my ability to love him perfectly. I am... I'm not going to be rewarded because, oh, Jess, you loved me so perfectly. I, it's about receiving. And in the crux of it, it's the hardest thing to do when we feel weak and shame and whatever. Even for me, sometimes it's, it's the moment where my, I'm I get really tired by the end of the day. I have three kids, so it makes sense. I am an introvert by nature, so this is... I love doing this, but this is draining for me. So when I'm done, I'm ready to just go be by myself, you know. But then I have three kids, and then they talk and talk, and they don't stop, and then they scream, and they whine. That's normal. So at the end of the day, like one day, I just have Ezra, and he's screaming his head off at me, which you've seen my sweet little baby. He actually smiles most of the time, but he does scream, and I couldn't get it to sleep. But inside, I broke. I was just like, I'm done. I cannot hold it together anymore. So I gave my baby to Aaron. I was angry. I could feel it all. And I'm just, so I start sobbing. In that moment, what do I need? I don't need to fix it, do it better. I need to say, Jesus, enjoy me right now. <laughs> I'm really dark. I'm a parent who's mad. I'm mad at an eight-month-old. How can you be mad at that cute little thing? But I am. I'm mad. All of me is going, just go to sleep because I'm so tired and whatever. It's not just, but we all understand the emotions. But in that moment, I don't need to be so thrown off that I'm angry. That's the thing. Usually, we're so like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm angry. I lost it. It's a, I can't believe I did this. Like, I should be more better. I should be more holy. Whatever. It sh we should just be able to say, like, Jesus, enjoy me right now. Tell me you like me right now when I'm mad. <laughs> Help me receive that love. That changes something. He's not sitting there looking at me, waiting for me to go, Jess, get it all together. And if I'm angry and I've sinned against my child, I will absolutely repent. Like, I'm sorry for my anger. Please help me right now and like me and love me. That helps my heart so much. And it only takes a minute and then I can go back and hold my baby. But if I am trying to pull, like, this doesn't translate either. We always say pull up our bootstraps, like, just trying to be strong, get our uniform all together. That does not help me be a better parent. It just makes me control more. We have this, we like to have everything in control. And I j just one other thi couple things I want to say real quick about our love before the Lord 
and how he sees it. I think sometimes we look at our love and we think, gosh, it's just, even when we make bad choices, sometimes other people or ourselves might have labeled it as rebellion. It's not rebellion. It's immaturity. There's a difference. Rebellion is like this defiance rage against the Lord. We're not rebellious. We're just immature sometimes. And that's a good distinction because I think sometimes the enemy or people label us and say, oh, that believer's just a rebellious believer. I'm like, no, they're immature. What they need is they need some good boundary lines and a ton of affection and love. Like when my son David is like frantic, sometimes we sit down at the dinner table in Kansas City and I can just look at him. I'm like, oh gosh, this is not good. This is not going to be an easy dinner time. So I look at my husband. I'm like, I know you're hungry, but can you go wrestle him? David's love language is wrestle. His love language is physical touch. He just needs it. They go wrestle on the living room in on the rug for five minutes. The kid's a different kid. He doesn't need me to harp on him more. He needs me to wrestle him or to hug him and love him. It's it's different. We're just so used to, I'll do it better. I feel like that's constantly in my head sometimes. Like, I'm sorry, I'll do it better. Like growing up, that was kind of how I was raised. And that's not the Lord's heart. And it, it, the immaturity, the Lord actually delights in the process. That's what's so hard for us. I think I said that before. Sometimes I just, can you fix me all up and then just unite me to Christ? And you know, then I can feel good about me. The point is, can I just feel good about me? And no, we can't unless we're looking at him and receiving from him. And just to give you a mental picture, too, the difference is like both sheep and pigs get stuck in the mud sometimes, right? The difference between immature and rebellion, rebellious and immaturity is sheep are trying to get out. Pigs just stay. Like, they're not trying to actually get free of the mud. So sometimes sheep mess up. They get stuck in the mud. But if I used to take care, I used to raise sheep and pigs. I was like a little farm girl. And it's really true. The pigs just are happy to stay, lay in it, and add more mud, please. And the, the, the sheep don't like it. They'll play for a minute, but then they regret it because they just don't like it. So that is the difference even practically, like, uh, a immature believer is just a lover of God who struggles with sin sometimes, and we all have those different things. And then rebellion is somebody who actually loves sin and struggles with and is raging against God. So again, I just want to reiterate and validate, really, I think one of my biggest desires today is just to validate who we are as people, our emotions, and validate that ache inside of us to be loved and to feel love and to acknowledge some of those things that keep us from him. Uh, and I said it before, one of them is shame. Um, another one of them is rejection. She feels, we can feel shame, we can feel rejected, either from people or from the Lord, just from misunderstanding. We can feel burnt out and we can feel dull or we can feel distant. There's all these things we can feel that keep us from being able to receive from God and keep us in this place of saying, I'm just dark and not being able to receive the lovely part. So those are just the things I want to acknowledge today. And then if you read down later, if you read on later down um, in the chapter, I'm skipping some of it, but I just want to reiterate 
I mean, not reiterate, I want to emphasize a verse just so that you understand what he thinks. So she asks him, where do you feed your flock? And he tells her, this is important too, he tells her to stay by the shepherd's tents, which I've said it before, which is stay near your church, stay in the bo- stay close to a community of believers, don't get isolated, don't get idle. Stay, he's basically telling her, stay in the church, serve, and do what the other believers are doing until you figure out your own way with me. Because often if there's rejection, shame, you feel dull, burn, especially burnout. Some people just leave. They're like, I'm going to figure this out with me and Jesus and just do my home. And my, it's not safe. It's not safe because none of us are good outside of community. We need community really bad. That's what he says to her. And then he, he calls her his darling. And then in verse 9, he says, you're like a mare among the chariots of Pharaoh, uh, the chariots of Pharaoh. Basically, he's comparing this sweet little small young horse because in uh, in one part, she's a f- I can't do it all right now. Sorry, I don't have all the verses, but. Basically, he's just saying that the the horses of Pharaoh, if you know anything about Egypt, Pharaoh, Pharaoh had the best horses in all of the land. He got the cream of the crop. He had those beautiful. I love horses. He had these beautiful horses, and he's saying, you're this weak little filly, but you're like them. He compares her to them and saying, how beautiful. You'd think he would call her one of those types of horses at the end of Song of Solomon, but he doesn't. He puts it at the beginning, saying, this is how I see you. That gives us courage when he says, this is who you are. It gives you courage and confidence to walk it out before him. And I just want to even address something I think too that's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to walk in confidence and boldness and not be like and not have it misunderstood. Does that make sense? So sometimes there's people I've I Deborah, if anybody met Deborah and Murray, Deborah is this beautiful woman. She's very confident and often she could be labeled as proud and arrogant. She's not at all once you get to know her. It's confidence. Her, her like, brightness and e- it's confidence in his love. And she steps out with boldness and with zeal because he asks her to. And, yes, that ends up meaning attention gets drawn to her. But what does Deborah always do? Makes us look at Jesus. When she's done speaking, what do we all want? Him. That's the glory. Confident in love does mean attention will be drawn to you. But it's for others, like in Song of Solomon, then she talks about the beauty of Jesus, and they say, where is he gone? They don't say, where are you going? They say, where, if you're going where he's going, we'll follow you, but they want him. So I think culturally, too, it's hard in some cultures to draw attention to yourself, to receive compliments and praise. I think there's good compliments and there's bad compliments. I get compliments. I don't try to push them away. When people say, oh, that was beautiful, I say, thank you. And then in my heart, I know, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I used to be terrified of public speaking. I could have never done this. In high school, I hyperventilated almost through speech class. I was terrified of people. This is not me in my person this is not my personality 
but it's the Lord and my confidence in him and the fact that I like what he does so much and his love so much that I just have to tell you all about it. So I just wanted to say that it's okay to have attention drawn to you, even if it's against the culture norms. It's not you drawing attention to you. Does that, it's different. There's seasons where the Lord, there's a highlight on some people sometimes. The Lord highlights them, and they're seen and they're known, but it's for other people to see and know him and be provoked into it. And then there's times where the Lord hides people. I've had hidden time. I'm a mom of three kids. I'm home most of the time. I'm hidden. In that hidden time, I'm not seen, but I am seen by him, and the same fruit can come out of the season. Somebody can be on the stage preaching. I can be at home changing diapers. But if I'm saying yes, we can come out of those two years with the same fruit. It's all about the heart. It's not always about what we're doing. It's why we're doing it and that heart of doing it. It's the difference between Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha did the same thing as far as after Lazarus died. But it was their heart posture that changed him. And sometimes we're so... uh, we look at the external so much that we don't realize that it in the seasons of hiddenness or even in the season of promotion, it's both a testing. Does that make sense? The person on the stage is being tested equally as much as the person who's being hidden. Being promoted, I, I now that I've been doing this for 19 years, I used to think being hidden would be harder. Being promoted and being seen is the hardest thing, actually. It is the hardest test. Because at the end of the day, it's still all about him, but you're going to receive the praise of men. And it's how you weather it. It's are those, you can receive them because a a receiving from somebody is correct, saying thank you for their compliment. You don't want to shut the person down. You say thank you. But it doesn't have to be one of those stars that sticks to you and identifies you. Still, he's the only one that identifies me. But I can say thank you, receive their compliment, and move on if that makes sense. Sorry, you guys received a lot of different things today. It's been a heavy day. I just want to end on this this truth that also comes out of chapter 1 um, in verse 16. She says to him, How handsome you are, my beloved, and pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. In other translations, it says our bed is green or the the real word there is couch, a place. But it really the point is, it's a place to rest. It's like the Psalm 23. He leads me to still waters, to green pastures. The Lord leads us to that place of rest. And I think for some of us as believers, we all have what's called the rest of forgiveness. We've been forgiven. We know the cross. We know the gospel. We all have that truth. The thing that I think the Lord I know the Lord wants to do is give us the rest of intimacy. That's the rest of the restored relationship with him. At the end of the day, there's believers. I've been there too where it's like, I know I'm saved. I know I'm forgiven. I have that confidence, but I don't have that rest in my relationship with him. Does that make sense? I don't have that rest of intimacy, the intimacy of the Lord. There's a rest that he's inviting us into. And that's the ultimate purpose of our life. We've all heard the Augustine quote, or maybe you haven't. Man does not rest until he finds his rest in God. There's so much in this earth. I think that's the quest of everyone. 
every person in life is just seeking that place where they can breathe and rest. Since the fall, we've not been at rest. And that's the, the journey of Song of Solomon. The journey she goes on is finding that rest in her soul. Like I said the other night in 710 and 810 where she, in 810 where she says, I have found peace before his eyes. That rest, that we can just close our eyes and have rest. That comes from lots of dialogue, maybe counselors. For me, I sat in the prayer room for, I don't know what year it was. Oh, I think it was 2009. 2009 was a very intense year for me. So I'd been in the prayer room for um, eight years. It doesn't seem, I mean, it's pretty long. And the Lord did a lot in my heart. But I'm sitting in the prayer room. It's just a lot of it was me and him talking. And not like, you know, hyper-spiritual or anything, just real simple. He would tell me little things and help heal my heart with different things. And then there came the day where he just kind of looked at me and or told me, he's like, okay, now you need deliverance. Like, you need to go to those people. <laughs> like, not everything can be worked out, just you and Jesus in your little prayer closet. Like, there's different things that actually have to be with other believers and laid hands. And I, I mean, I'm not saying I was possessed by a demon. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I needed to have somebody help me pray through an intense thing that happened in my childhood, and there was a root of anger that had to come out. And what happens is the more you sit with Jesus, the more he's watering that soil, and those bad roots that have taken root over the years get softened. And sometimes we think, the further we go in our life, the, the more there's not those things. It's actually the opposite sometimes. Sometimes you go further in, and now something really deep and dark gets brought to the surface, and he goes, you couldn't have handled it before. The soil was dry. I couldn't get at it. It's just like gardening. If you need to get a deep root, what do you do? You water and water and water and dig and dig and work with the soil until you can get that. You don't just chop off the fruit, the bad fruit. The Lord is after those roots in our hearts, and they take time, and they're a process. And all along, he's sitting up there going, I delight in you. I delight in you. I enjoy you. Can Do you trust me? That is what he's saying constantly. And sometimes... It's so hard for us to believe, but that is really what he's doing. And I often, I have the picture in my head of a surgeon. Does the surgeon need the patient to wake up and help him? No. <laughs> I just sometimes think we're like patients on a surgery table. And we're like, hey, let me, like, we're like trying to dig around in there with him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, just breathe and rest. We can trust him. We can really trust him. Yes, some, there's a partnership. There's a... Our part, his part, there is that partnership, but I just want to encourage us today. We can trust him to bring our hearts into that place of freedom, into that place of love, into that place of feeling loved, knowing loved. It doesn't, I don't care if you're a mom, a janitor, a preacher, a worship leader. This is for every believer. This is the glory of our life, is that we get to have relationship with God. So those are just a few truths, things I wanted to go through as far as the dark but lovely. And again, I encourage you, study this book. Sing this book over yourself. It's the hardest thing to do sometimes, but you just tell him what, who he is, but 
you need to sit there sometimes and say, I'm lovely to you. You like me. My little choices move your heart and just let him love you. It sounds so simple, but it is profound how it changed. It has changed my life. I cannot tell you the kind who I was when I was 18, 19. Completely different person. It doesn't just have to do with the fact that I'm 18 years older at all. It has to do with I believe more and more and more he likes me. And the turnaround, like the life of David, how many people, you're astonished how David can just turn in the Old Testament. He gets called out on sin, and he turns, and he puts himself prostrate before the Lord and repents. He doesn't, there's no time out. And one of the main verse things that David says is, you delight in mercy. I said it before, but the Lord loves loving us. It's just who he is. So my challenge to you is let him be who he is with you. Let him win the argument. Let him win with the truth that he delights in you. This can be the most powerful thing you feed people with. Peter walked away with this story. How, that's the glory of Peter's life. He fed so many sheep with that story of how Jesus loved him in his weakness. And that's if you have people you feed or if this is meaning spiritually or if this is just for your own heart or your children someday, this can be one of the most beautiful things that you give them, that God delights us in our weakness. Amen. Let me pray for you guys real quick. Jesus, again, we thank you for who you are. Again, we submit to your thoughts, your emotions, and we say we trust you. Lord, we thank you that you're not like our fathers. Thank you that you're not distant. Like sometimes my father was distant. I couldn't go play and run in his lap. I had to be quiet. I had to have it put together. I had to clean up every mess. Thank you that you're not like that. You're not the dad who gives us directions and expects us to figure it out on our own. You're the dad who gives us directions and walks with us every step. And when we stumble, you smile and help us up. Lord, we ask for this revelation to heal our hearts. We ask for truth to wash our inner mans. And we ask that there would be today a breaking of the storyline that shame has been telling us all these years, that you would break the power of what shame has said, what the enemy has said. Would you give us the storyline that you say about us? Just like Peter, do you love me? Yes, we love you, Jesus. Would you help us confess the truth over ourselves, that we're dark but lovely to you. Lovely is what we stand with. Yes, we are weak, but before your eyes, we are confident that we're lovely. Until that day that we actually see as you see, Lord, give us faith and confidence to believe and receive your love and to proclaim it with boldness. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.